0: from the Gospel of Mark uh, in the first chapter, verses 29 to 39, and this is uh, an account of Jesus' ministry. As soon as they left the synagogue, they entered the house of Simon and Andrew with James and John. Now Simon's mother-in-law was in bed with a fever, and they took him about her at once, or they told him about her at once. He came and took her by the hand and lifted her up. Then the fever left her, and she began to serve them. That evening at sunset, they brought to him all who were sick or possessed by demons, and the whole city was gathered around the door, and he cured many who were sick with various diseases and cast out many demons, and he would not permit the demons to speak because they knew him. In the morning, while it was still very dark, he got up and went out to a deserted place, and there he prayed. And Simon and his companions hunted for him. When they found him, they said to him, Everyone is searching for you. He answered, Let us go on to the neighboring towns, so that I may proclaim the message there also, for that is what I came out to do. And he went throughout all Galilee, proclaiming the message in their synagogues and casting out demons. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God.
1: This is such a wonderful story. I think there are at least 6 sermons that could be uh, offered from this text, but I'm going to lean into one of uh, one particular direction. Over the past uh, several Sundays, we've been uh, looking at the lectionary text under the broad heading of a new creation. And it began with the uh, Genesis 1 account, the original creation, as a way to remember that any kind of New Testament concept of a new creation in our lives, in the world, in our institutions, always has to find its uh, foundation in the original creation account in Genesis 1 and 2, when God created all things, called it good, and created humankind, and called us very good. Um, And so it's important that we remember that original creation account. The second week we were reminded that, uh, from Paul actually, that because of the resurrection of Jesus, the sacredness of our bodies are affirmed. They are the temples of the living God and so our bodies are a new creation. The third week, we looked at the story of Jonah and Jonah going down into the belly of the whale um, after running from his calling and running from God, and, and, uh, and we reflected on how Jesus said that he will only give one sign and that will be the sign of Jonah which is another way of saying that the pattern of transformation for all humankind is that we must take the path of descent. We must go down before we can go up. Just as Jesus uh, went down uh, from the cross into the belly of the earth, we believe, and before he was risen from the grave. And so our souls are made a new creation when we're willing to take the path of descent in our spiritual lives. Last week, Pastor Bree uh, reminded us that of the new communities that are a new creation in light of of Jesus and the new communities that he was forming um, to struggle and their struggle uh, to live faithfully together amid incredible diversity, diversity of cultural experience, differing value systems, and so our communities are meant to be a new creation uh, that celebrates the unity of God among incredible diversity. Today's text shows us how this new creation is meant to spread beyond ourselves. And so, we're going to look at this scene in the life of Jesus. It was kind of early in his ministry in the first chapter of the Gospel of Mark, and he's up in uh, the northern Galilee region um, in Capernaum, and it was evening, the sun was setting, Earlier in the day, he had spent the day teaching in the synagogue. And after that, after he left there, he went with James and John uh, to Simon and Andrew's house. These are his four first disciples, uh, Simon and Andrew, James and John, went to Simon and Andrew's house. And there at Simon and Andrew's house, Simon's mother-in-law was sick. And so Jesus healed her. After the healing after the teaching in the synagogue, after all of that, just as the sun was setting, Mark tells us that they brought to Jesus all who were sick and all who may have been possessed by a demon. The whole town they brought to the foot of this house, of the door of Simon's uh, mother's house. As Mark records it, the whole city gathered around the door. That's a lot of people, the whole town. He didn't, Jesus needed, didn't need a key to get into the city. The whole city came to him. Capernaum turned up to see Jesus. And now the text says, he cured many and he cast out many demons. Many, but not all. Isn't that Interesting. You know, Matthew's gospel indicates this. It says, Jesus went throughout Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the good news of the kingdom and curing every disease and every sickness among the people. Luke says something similar. He writes, as the sun was setting, all those who had any who were sick with various kinds of diseases brought them to him, and he laid his hands on Each of them, that is every single one of them and cured them. But here in Mark, the whole town was on his doorstep and he healed many. He cast out many, but not all. I want you to hold on to that for a moment. We'll get back to it in a second. As the story goes on, Mark tells us in the morning while it was still very dark. In the morning, but still very dark dark. Do you know what that's like? For me, that's like any time before 530 in the morning, um, but still very dark. It means that this is something other than like just waking up a little bit early. This isn't just as dawn was breaking in before sunrise. This was the morning and it was still very, very dark. It's the kind of time of morning when babies wake up to nurse. Uh, this is the kind of time of morning when someone is up because sleep won't come, because the worry won't stop, because the mind and the heart just keeps racing. Something got him up before it was time to get up. Uh, it wasn't the discipline of getting a start to the day. It was more like getting up to ease the torment of the night. Jesus got up in the morning while it was still very, very dark. And it says that he went out into the wilderness to pray. At least in the New Jerusalem translation, it says wilderness. In the NRSV, it says he went out to a deserted place to pray. He got up and went to a deserted place. One translation says that he went to a solitary place. Solitary place. Deserted place. In other words, like a place without people, right? Right? But interestingly, the Greek word for solitary place or deserted place is literally translated wilderness. I mean, yeah, the Greek is wilderness. And it's a harsh place. Um, It's not just a solitary place. It's a rough place. Kind of like earlier in Mark chapter 1 when Jesus was baptized and then after his baptism, he was driven out by the Holy Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil and to be, um, you know, surrounded by wild beasts and to be waited on by angels. The harsh Judean wilderness where he went after the Jordan River after his baptism. Um, it was a place like he had been before. And in the region of Israel and Palestine, the wilderness areas refer to arid, desert-like, windswept, mountainous regions, kind of like we have in southern Utah, in various places, or Nevada. These are regions below Jerusalem, kind of near the, uh, the Dead Sea. And in the Bible's land, wilderness means Judean wilderness. And it looks like this. That's wilderness. When you read, Bible, when you read wilderness in the Bible, you picture this. Um, Interestingly, Jesus and his disciples weren't anywhere near this land when he went out into the wilderness. Um, They were in the northern part of Galilee. They were on the north shore in Capernaum, and so by contrast, in that region around the Sea of Galilee in the north where Jesus was at the time, it looks like this. Which one of these two pictures looks like a wilderness? So what does it mean that Jesus went out into the wilderness? I mean, for uh, however far he could walk, maybe a mile or two in the dark part of the morning in the region of northern Galilee, how in the world did he go into the wilderness? Well, what that means, of course, is that this deserted wilderness place of prayer in the lush hills of Galilee, while it was still very dark, obviously bears a deeper connotation than the literal landscape. It's not talking about the landscape, it's talking about the condition of Jesus' heart and his soul. Uh, He wasn't heading out for morning devotions to do his daily quiet time. He was going to gut it out with God in prayer, to lay it all out. Jesus bearing his soul, like Jesus in the wilderness being taunted by the devil, or like Jesus outside the garden, pleading for God to take this cup from him, or like the time when Jesus was weeping over Jerusalem. Jerusalem, Jerusalem, if only you recognize the things that make for peace. It was that kind of spiritual space, that kind of agony for Jesus. There he went and he prayed, and as Mark continues, he says, Simon and his companions, you would think maybe that would be Andrew, James, and John, hunted for him. When they found him, they said to him, everyone is searching for you. They hunted for him. No mention of, you know, somebody waking up and going, "Well, we realized Jesus was gone. Uh, no mention of somebody responsible for standing watch by night, nothing like that, just they hunted for him. The King James Version softens it and says that they followed him, almost like it was a kind of a discipleship thing, like, oh, they just followed him. Um, But the, the word has a stronger connotation to that. The word literally translates chased, pursued, or hunted. They hunted for him. They hunted for him kind of like the way a parent hunts for a child who has, or a teenager who has not come home from a party that they went to on Friday night. The parent has no trouble going to knock on the door of that house knowing that if there is an adult here, they're probably asleep. The parent has no concern about uh, embarrassing their kid uh, in front of all their friends and the, the whole place and even God for that matter. Excuse me, don't you know I've been looking all over the place? Do you know what it's like driving around this hour in the middle of the night trying to find you? Do you, do you not know uh, what it's like to be waiting for you, to be looking for you? I've been hunting for you. I'm grateful I've not had to do that as a parent, not yet anyway, and I hope not to. But the implication, of course, in Mark chapter 1 must be that they went after him with a little more intentionality than just following him on his discipleship journey. They went after him with a bit of attitude, a bit of determination, a bit of haste, almost as if he were the one who was disobeying them which is never really a good posture to have with Jesus, they hunted him down. Don't you know that everyone's searching for you? What are you doing here? What the heck? The whole town is at the doorstep and there's more to do. You cured many, you cast out many, you healed many, many, but not all. There's tons of people. Let's go, Jesus. What are you doing out here? There's work to do. Capernaum is waiting for you. And so they hunted for him, and when they found him, they gave him this sort of rebuke for ditching everyone, all the healing, all the need, all the brokenness. What was his struggle in prayer all about? What got him up so early in the morning to hash it out in the wilderness of his soul? Well, the text doesn't really tell us, so maybe it was about the magnitude of one day's accumulation of work that he found at his doorstep. Maybe that woke him up, kept him up. Maybe it was just the sheer amount of work that he he was getting himself into, so much more than he could possibly imagine or more he thought was going to be the case. Or maybe the dark night of his soul was related to his own realization that they had to move on from there, even though the work wasn't done. They, there was more, there was more to do in the next town, more love to be shared, more kingdom work to do. We don't really know what Simon, what he said to Simon and the others who came hunting for him was this, let's go on to the neighboring towns so that I may proclaim the message there also for that is what I came out to do. And so the interpretive question of this verse is, well, what did Jesus come out to do? And here's where some would stress the importance of proclaiming the message. This is what Jesus came to do, proclaim the message. And all the healings and all the miracles and all those things are meant to serve that greater message. They're not ends in and of itself, and so it's fine to leave the town with other people still sick and with other healings still needed because after all even the people that are he healed are going to die in 20 or 30 years anyway. The real point is the message. And and so we must move on to the next town to proclaim the message and this, what is this message? Mark defines it in one in the very first verse, the good news of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And so this thread of argument suggests that rather than the miracles becoming the thing, Jesus moves on to affirm that the gospel is why he came. That's what he came out to do. And it makes sense, you know, when you read it, uh, that proclaiming the message is what he came out to do. Jesus says it. Mark repeats it, proclaim the message. But what if there's also another way of reading it? You know, a lot of the scriptures are these stories and the gospels are like diamonds and you can turn it and look at it a different way and it reflects a different kind of light. What if in addition to proclaiming the message, what if another way to read it is to say what he came out to do was to go on to the neighboring towns That's what I came out to do, to go on to neighboring towns, to not stay here, to go throughout Galilee, to proclaim the message to others, to not stay here, to preach not just to you, but also to them. We have to go. It's time to go. And the whole town of Capernaum that was left on that doorstep that morning, well, they were left in a huff, as Mark says, uh, moaning and groaning, They were miffed at Jesus because they were hunting for him. There was more healing to do, more things in their hometown and their people. They wanted to keep Jesus for themselves. They wanted to hoard Jesus in Capernaum, and he knew it. He knew it. It seems to me that's what kept him up, got him up at night. For the sake of the gospel, he had to move on. They were hoarding Jesus, trying to keep him to themselves, kind of like at the Mount of Transfiguration when Peter wants to build tents for Elijah and Moses and Jesus and says, can't we just hang out up here and we can just have this wonderful time together even though there's a crowd of great need there at the bottom? No, let's just stay up here on the mountaintop hoarding Jesus. Or like when the mother of James and John asks Jesus if, she could, if he could secure uh, for her a spot for James and John on the right hand and at the left of Jesus in the kingdom hoarding Jesus. Or like when the disciples were just absolutely astonished that Jesus would be speaking to a Samaritan woman. Or like when they sternly told all those parents with their children, trying to bring their children to Jesus. No, no, keep them, keep them out. Not right now. We're hoarding Jesus. Or like when the disciples were angry when the, women, when the woman anointed Jesus with expensive perfume. That's not for you. We're hoarding Jesus. Or like at the empty tomb, when the disciples held on the, to the feet of the risen Christ and Jesus said, do not cling to me. Don't try to hoard me. That morning when it was still really dark, somewhere near Capernaum, they hunted for Jesus. It wasn't a following thing, it was a keeping Jesus for themselves kind of a thing, hoarding Jesus. This is the main idea. When we followers of Jesus think that the good news of the gospel is just for us, or if it's more important for us or to us than to others, first and foremost, We who assume the name Christian, who then turn Jesus into a Christ of our own making, a Jesus who agrees with everything we agree, with everything we already believe, and a Jesus who will excuse or understand or rationalize along with us everything we do. We are hoarding Jesus, hunting for him, trying to prevent him from bringing his good news on to the next town. And according to the text, he will move on with or without us, whether we are ready to go or not. Hunting Jesus down. In a time when political figures and public discourse and cable news and tax policy pretty much turn everything, reduce everything to us versus them, those who want to keep Jesus for themselves, of course, think that Jesus is for them and not for anyone else and so that great reformed theological affirmation of Barton Bonhoeffer that Christ is for us then gets turned into this sinful game of winners and losers like Christ is for us but not for them but when it comes to the Jesus of the gospels and the poor and the stranger and the foreigner and the unclean and the different and the outcast and the sick it's clearly Jesus for them. When we cling to Jesus, when we hoard Jesus, we enter into faith conversations more concerned about pure doctrine than courageous love. We err on the side of judgment rather than grace because it's more important to be right than to be faithful. You yearn for a faith life, a church life, a religious life, that used to be some day and long ago in the past rather than boldly looking forward to the days that God has in store in the future. And when we try to keep Jesus all for ourselves, we end up making decisions, coming to conclusions, forming opinions that end up hurting people. It's bound to happen when we crave a Jesus of our own image. We end up sounding like that Pharisee who gave thanks that he was not like those other out there, the tax collectors, the sinners, the spiritual but not religious, the Roman Catholics, the evangelical right, the liberal left, the New Agers, the atheists, the red state voters, the liberal elites, on and on and on and on our silly nation goes. But when we let go, when we surrender to the movement of the Spirit, even if it doesn't seem to make sense, uh, we truly follow Jesus where he intends to take us, then we can see that the us is them and the them is us, that we're actually the people in the neighboring town too. And we can freely join him and experience the joy of seeing him transform a human life starting with our own, redeeming people's lives, turning enemies into friends, bringing the beauty of new creation out of the rubble of destruction and division and harm that we see every day in the news and that we experience in our own lives. Let's not hoard Jesus or hunt him down, but let's be open to where his spirit wants to lead us as we follow him into the next town, wherever that may be. Gracious God, we thank you. And we thank you that you call us uh, to a wild and faithful and exciting and scary journey. Most of all, we thank you that all we're really called to do is to attach ourselves to you and to follow you. And so uh, we do seek to, to look to you to be our guide. Give us courage. Give us courage. We seek to pray this every single Sunday because it really isn't about being right or having the right answers or winning. It's about knowing you. And it's about learning to live in your love and to share it with others as you were so called and responsive to do. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.